Think think for a second about when you go traveling and you're looking at um, going at a place that you've never been before. Uh, I think about, you know, remember the old days when we had to use uh, real maps. You know, now we just plug in the GPS or look at our smartphone and and uh, it takes us there. We really don't even have to think. We can even turn it on to where it tells us, turn right. You know, and if we've missed the turn, it'll tell you, turn around. There's a, the GPS is, um, does the thinking for us. Back in, the, back in the day, and it wasn't too long ago, when we actually had to use physical maps, there was a bit of anxiety with it because there was nothing on the map that told you you've missed it, you have to turn around. You had to wait till you came upon a landmark or, or whatever. So there's this always focused looking to the next turn. And when you're looking at a physical map, there's always this um, this sense of anticipation of the immediate next need or the immediate next decision that you have to make. And then uh, it, it always seems to take so long to get where you're going. And then once you get there, leaving, going back, you know, going back the other direction, doesn't seem to take as long because you aren't near as focused or as anxious about it. So think about that perspective for just a second. Getting there seems to take so much longer than getting back from there. It's true of driving, and it's also true of living. Think for a second back about 25 years. And so here it is, 2020, that would be 1995. 1995 doesn't sound long ago. I mean, that like sounds like, you know, 10 years ago. It doesn't feel long ago. And if you can think back to what you were doing 25 years ago, uh, you'll, you'll think, you know, I pretty much was thinking and acting and concerned about the same things that I am today. And yet at that time, looking forward, you could not have imagined all that you would go through to get to 2020. I say that to say because 25 years in the past seems like yesterday. 25 years in the future seems like forever. And uh, it's pretty hard to imagine, you know, another 10, 15, 25 years of, of having to wait on something, uh, whether it's a, a turn in the road or a turn in life or even uh, the expectation of glory. But I say all that to say is a nice metaphor for Abraham. We've been looking at the life of Abraham, and you remember when Abraham was called by God, he was called at the age of 75, and he was told that he was going to have a uh, a descendants. And ultimately, that would come through his son Isaac, who would come 25 years later. So Abraham waited for the initial fulfillment of this promise for 25 years. Well, we can learn some great uh, principles from Abraham's life, as we have in our uh, little Zoom series here on Abraham these uh, many weeks and even now months it's become. So let's look together at Genesis chapter 20. And in a sense, we'll be given the blessing of looking at the map from a 30,000-foot view, if you think of it that way. We said that looking back over our lives, the last 25 years behind us, it's a lot easier. It seems like yesterday. It seems like no time at all. 
but it always seems so long getting where we're going. And the text today is going to give us some help as we wait on that next turn, or we wait on whatever it is that we're waiting on God to bring about in our lives, just as Abraham was waiting for the fulfillment of the promise that God made him. So you're turning to Genesis 20, but you may remember the last uh, some chapters that we've looked at since Genesis chapter 12. In Genesis 12, God called Abraham to leave Ur of the Chaldees there in the Persian Gulf area and to travel up uh, the, fer- the Fertile Crescent northwest up to a place in Haran, which is in eastern Turkey today, about as far eastern Turkey as you can go. Well, actually, I guess Arat, uh, uh, Mount Arat is even further east. But anyway, as far as you want to go, let me say that. Um, and then uh, started headed southeast down through Israel, or what was then called Canaan, and he entered Canaan. And this is the land that God promised him, and God even confirmed it once he got there. In Genesis 15, we saw that God confirmed the covenant to Abraham and made very clear to Abraham that the descendants that uh, God had promised Abraham weren't going to come from this legal descendant through his servant Eliezer, but through a physical descendant that would come from Abraham's own body. And this blew Abraham away because, of course, he's an old man. And this typically doesn't happen to people that age. And so he realizes it's going to come from him. Well, uh, Genesis chapter 17 and 18, the, the text goes on to show us that God gives Abraham a sign of this covenant. And uh, we skipped the part in uh, Genesis 12 where they, when they went down to Egypt because there was a famine. Remember that part? And, and Abraham compromised in going to Egypt, and they picked up on the way back or as they left, they brought back with them a lot of uh, property, including a slave girl named Hagar. And Abraham and Sarah began to get impatient on waiting on God's promise to be fulfilled. And so they figured, you know, maybe God's planning to fulfill it through this, uh, this measure of, uh, Abraham, you take Hagar as, to, as an, an additional wife and raise up a descendant through Hagar. And so Abraham does that, and it backfires on them, and it ends up just being a big mess. Well, Genesis 17 and 18, I was about to tell you, uh, we saw that a, a couple of weeks ago, where God comes to Abraham and says, it's not going to be through it, Eliezer, your servant. It's not going to be through this son of the maidservant. It's not going to be through Ishmael. It's going to be a son from Sarah. It's going to be a son that you're going to name Laughter. You're going to name him Isaac. And uh, both uh, Abraham and Sarah laugh at the notion that this could happen. And God says it it is indeed going to happen. In fact, God says uh, in Genesis 17, a year from right now, it's going to happen. So Abraham no longer has to wonder when. He can put it in his calendar that this time next year, Sarah is going to have a son. Well, now in Genesis chapter 20, we skipped the Genesis 19 because it's sort of a sidebar on Sodom, which we looked at last week. But now Genesis chapter 20 picks up again with Abraham, and this is this intervening year, the year between the the time that God says it's going to be a year and then Sarah actually having Isaac. 
there's a year of time, and Sarah has not even conceived yet. We'll, we'll find out. So this is even before Sarah's conception. So Genesis 20, let's look right in verse 1, and let's continue this wonderful, practical story. Verse 1 says, Now Abraham journeyed from there toward the land of the Negev, and settled between Kadesh and Shur. Then he sojourned in Gerar. You know, so many times when we read the Bible, we read things that we're not familiar with, like these terms, Negev, Kadesh, Shur, Gerar. You know, you just read those and you think, so what? What's the big deal? Glad you asked. Let's look at a map here. I want to show you a map of the area that we are uh, talking about. So this is Israel, of course, and I think if I make it a little bigger, I can enlarge it. Yes, I can. And so Abraham and Lot separated. You can't really see my cursor here. Let me take two seconds and make my cursor bigger. All right, now you can see it. So Abraham and Lot separated right here, and Lot, you can see, heads down to Sodom. And Sodom is at the bottom of the Dead Sea area, or is probably where it was. Most good uh, atlases will put question questionable sites in question, with question marks. So it's like, maybe it was here, we think it was here, not real sure. But this is where, the, where Sodom and Gomorrah took place. And then we're told that Abraham journeyed from there. So Abraham was up in this area of Bethel and Ai, and then he traveled down on the blue line here, what's called the Way of the Patriarchs. And it says that he went down into the Negev. Negev is a, a Hebrew term that not only describes the area, but it also means south. And so here it is in the south. And we're told that he went down to Kadesh. Now, if you look at the very bottom down here, I hope your, your screen can show it, but down here at the bottom there is a town called Kadesh. Kadesh is a reference to Kadesh Barnea. And then it says that he settled between Kadesh and Shur. And you can see this road here says the way to Shur. Shur is off the map. So he went pretty far south. And then it says, then he sojourned in Gerar. So he leaves the area of Kadesh and Shur and comes up to this area over here, Gerar, which is in the area of the Philistines. And uh, but anyway, so so what? So we've seen it on the map. Why is that significant? Well, the text mentions these three areas, and the uh, tell you what. Before I tell you that, let me show you. I think I've got a picture of Gerar here. Where is it? There it is. This is uh, clearly in the spring because in this area, when it gets past summer and fall, it all turns brown and kind of looks like uh, August in Texas. But this is Gerar. It was a huge area in the time of Abraham. It was about a 40-acre area. And uh, I've been to Gerar. In fact, I did a video on this place. It's a beautiful area. You can see in the spring, the fields are just lush. 
and um, it takes a lot of water to take care of this area. It only gets uh, inches a year. But it's right on the edge, if I were to go back to the map, you can see it's right on the edge here of uh, the very fertile coastal plain, and then it begins to inch up into down here into the Negev, where it is, uh, it's much more dry and there isn't as much uh, productivity. All right, so why, why talk about these sites? Well, because remember, first of all, originally, who's reading this? This is Genesis. Who's reading Genesis? It's not Abraham. I mean, it's, it's, it's Moses and the children of Israel. Now, so why mention these sites? Well, think about in the, the experience of the Exodus, or really the whole uh, journey from Egypt to the Promised Land, how are these sites significant? Uh, the Negev is significant, but that's not where I want to camp. What about Kadesh? Kadesh Barnea. Can you think of a significant event that, that took place at Kadesh Barnea? Well, if you, were, if you were thinking in the book of Numbers, you'd be right. Because you remember in the book of Numbers, Kadesh Barnea is where Moses sent out the spies to spy out the land, came back. Joshua and Caleb said, hey, let's take the land. God says we can do it. The other 10 tribes, the other ten, uh, tribes or spies say, no, we can't do it. And so there was a, 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 a faith problem, a fear problem at Kadesh, where God made them face their fear. And at Kadesh, they failed. Well, if you fast forward 40 years of wandering in the wilderness— uh, that, that was Numbers 14, I think, and then Numbers chapter 20, they come right back to Kadesh again, except this time it's not the people who fail, it's Moses who fails when he um, strikes the rock instead of speaks to the rock. So Kadesh is a place of facing fear, and it's a place often of failure in the past. And the people, both the one who wrote this, Moses, and the, uh, the people who first read it, the Israelites, would have associated Kadesh with a place of fear and a place of facing your fear as opposed to tr and trusting God. That's exactly what we're going to find Abraham doing in this text. Uh, also, sh the way to sure is mentioned here, or sure. Even in the story of Abraham, we've already seen sure play a part because the road to sure was the road to Egypt. And Abraham went to Egypt when there was a time of famine, and he was afraid. Um, and when he came out of Egypt, he had the, uh, the maid Hagar. So all of this sort of plays together in a subtle way to sort of set the scene for what's going to happen here. Are we going to see history re repeat itself, in a sense, before that history <laughs> has ever happened? So let's look at verse 7 and look at, uh, this, at what happened in this area. Verse 2, Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, notice the text says, Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. So Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream of the night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is married. Now Abimelech had not come near her. And he said, Lord, will you slay a nation, even though blameless? Did he not himself say to me, she's my sister? 
And she herself said, He is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that in the integrity of your heart you have done this, and I have also kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now, therefore, restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you will live. But if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So we won't read the rest of this chapter, but you could just glance down through and see that uh, it's sort of deja vu all over again, isn't it? Just as Abraham went on the road to Shur to Egypt, he repeated this lie. When he was in Egypt, he was afraid because Sarah was so beautiful that uh, the people of the land were going to kill Abraham in order to acquire Sarah. But if Sarah is available, Abraham can say, well, I'm just the brother. And in a sense, this was true. They were half-brother-sister. And so it was a half-lie or a half-truth, however you want to look at it. Abraham looked at it as a half-truth. God looked at it as a (laughs) half-lie. And uh, so did Abimelech once he found out about it, that uh, Sarah, his wife, is actually his sister, or vice versa. Sarah, his sister, is actually his wife. But notice the text tells us, God tells Abimelech, I kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. That's about verse 6. So, the text is significant because we see that for Abraham, his fear here in the area of Kadesh, or north of Kadesh, here at Gerar, his fear and his failure to trust God in this situation, the significant thing is that it almost jeopardized Sarah's pregnancy. Think about this. This was the year that that Isaac was to be conceived. They've waited all this time. And now all of a sudden they're in a situation to where Abraham panics and he's afraid and he he puts Sarah in a situation to where now potentially the son that should be Abraham's potentially could be Abimelech's. So you see God stepped in. God protected them. And God also most significantly protected his promise. That, that God's promise would not be thwarted by Abraham's fear or by Abimelech's, uh, Abimelech's desire. So keep your place, if you would, there in chapter 20 and turn to chapter 26. We're not going to look at the life of Isaac, but uh, let's just look at a quick event in the life of Isaac because it, it's very similar to what we just read in the life of Abraham. Genesis 26, look right at verse 1. See if this doesn't sound familiar. So Isaac is now a grown man, and he is, Abraham has died. And um, so he's got his own family now, or his own wife. Genesis 26, verse 1, There was a famine in the land besides the previous famine that occurred in the days of Abraham. So Isaac went to Gerar, that should be ringing bells, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. So there's sort of another deja vu all over again. How is Isaac going to respond in the same situation that Abraham was in? Well, look down at verse 6. We Verses 2 through 5, God reiterates his promise to Isaac. And then in verse 6, we're told Isaac lived in Gerar. And when the men of the place asked about his wife, 
Again, his wife, he said, she is my sister. (laughs) For he was afraid to say, my wife, thinking the men of this place might kill me on account of Rebekah, for she is beautiful. You know, it's so easy to look at this, uh, the book of Genesis, and the way that Moses has written this to clearly make the connection between Abraham and Isaac, like father, like son. Like the, the sin of the father is often repeated in the sin of the son because the example of the father is often followed by the example of the son. Not only Abraham's great faith, but also Abraham's great fear, the fear of man, the fear of people. Isaac repeated in the same place. Here, that's the irony. The exact same place, Gerar, Isaac repeated Abraham's sin. In fact, the text goes out of its way to tell us that there was a famine, and then it reminds us of Abraham's famine uh, in order to, that we don't miss the connection that the text is connecting Abraham and Isaac. And then, of course, Gerar just seals the deal because that's where it happened for both place, both events. Same city, same lie, same result. The wife was taken. And, once again, the same rescue. God steps in and God preserves the line of the family. God preserves the line of the patriarchs. And more importantly, God preserves his promises, which is really what it's all about. Now, we won't, again, we're not going to read this whole chapter for sure, but one thing I'd point out is look at verse 12. Look down at verse 12, if you would. Notice what it says. Now, Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold, and the Lord blessed him. That's significant because, remember, it was the famine in that land that tempted Isaac to run down to Egypt, and God tells him, don't go to Egypt, stay right here, and I'm going to take care of you. And Isaac does that. He stays. And we're told in that land, so in the land of famine, and that same year, in the time of the famine, God provided for Isaac a hundredfold in a year of a famine. Well, here's a principle, if it isn't obvious already And it's a principle that was true not only in Abraham and Isaac's life, but it is true in our lives as well. And that is simply this, that nothing can stop God from fulfilling his promises to us, not even our mistakes. Isn't that great news? Nothing can stop God from fulfilling his promises to us, not even our mistakes. Abraham made the the mistake Isaac made the exact same mistake, and yet God stepped in each time, not only to preserve his people, but also to preserve his promises. God's promises to you and to me are going to be fulfilled. There's nothing that can can stop those promises from being fulfilled. Not even us. We can't stop it. Abraham almost shortchanged his own blessing by jeopardizing the line, by putting Sarah in that position. Isaac did the same thing. God wouldn't allow even Abraham and Isaac to, uh, to thwart God's plan. Isn't that great? I love that. Well, look back at Genesis 20. Actually, look at Genesis 21, and let's continue the story. 
And I love the fact that this occurred in the land of famine, too, with Isaac, because in a sense, we didn't even read the part about the Philistines filling in the wells that Abraham dug, and uh, that caused all kinds of anxiety for Isaac. But all of that just reminds us that the setbacks that we deal with in life, and think about that as a setback, somebody filling in a well. I've never dug a well. I've planted a lot of trees. I've planted a lot of trees, but I've never dug a well. I mean, that's, that's a big hole. Imagine if somebody came and put dirt in your well. I mean, that really would be frustrating. Well, that's a setback if there ever was one. But the text shows us that, that uh, our setbacks in life only serve to glorify God more when He keeps His promises to us against impossible odds. Impossible odds. And we see that in the text. Well, Genesis 21, let's look right in verse 1, and let's continue the story that we had here in Genesis 20. Verse 1 says, Then the Lord took note of Sarah as He had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as He had promised. So Sarah conceived and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the appointed time of which God had spoken to him. And Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. Then Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Now Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. You know, you just got to smile when you think about uh, Abraham being that old when he had a son. Have you ever seen a hundred-year-old man hold a baby? There's something just wonderful about the, 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 the time represented just in that scene. When uh, Kathy and I had our first child named Sarah uh, back in 1993, we went to my uh, father's house or my grandfather's house, and we had uh, my great-grandfather, my grandfather, my father, me, and then Sarah. We had five generations all there right together. And to watch my great-grandfather hold little Sarah. This is a five-generation or a four-generation gap that is natural and normal. But when you, if you were to think about the fact of, and my great-grandfather, by the way, was 98 at the time. So basically a 100-year-old man holding a newborn. And I thought about Abraham, because that's exactly the scene that you have. This old, 100-year-old man holding uh, a little bitty baby who's just been born. And Sarah, of course, is 90, not too far behind Abraham. And this is an amazing, amazing uh, miracle that God has wrought. And I tried to emphasize it in the text as we were reading it, but let me just pointed out to you again in verses 1 and 2, because it's repeated so that we don't miss it. Verse 1 says that God took note of Sarah as he had said, and then the Lord did for Sarah as he had promised. And then verse 2, at the appointed time of which God had spoken. In other words, we're told three times that God kept his word, that the promise that God had made to Abraham 25 years before this 
as well as the promise that God had made a year before this, came true. And he named him Isaac, which means laughter. He laughs is literally what Yitzhak means. He laughs. And he was named this because, of course, Abraham and Sarah laughed. But it was also something that turned, and instead of representing their unbelief, it turned and their laughter became uh, a reminder of God's grace. Look at verse 6 as Sarah, how Sarah puts it. She says, God, and Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh with me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. This is just how God works, isn't it? How many times have you said in your life as something happened in a, in a wonderful way that you never could have imagined that it would turn out as good as it did? You think, you know, only God could have done this. Who would have said that this would have happened? God set it up in such a way that only he could do it, and he got the glory uh, from beginning to end. Well, verse 8 tells us, And the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on that day that Isaac was weaned. Now Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, mocking. Therefore she said to Abraham, Drive out this maid and her son, for the son of this maid shall not be an heir with my son Isaac. And the matter distressed Abraham greatly because of his son. So you see, the problem and the compromise that occurred back in chapter 16 is not, it's not done. I mean, Hagar's still there, Ishmael is still there, and the tension is there. Remember, Hagar was initially ushered away by Sarah because Hagar was uh, sort of flaunting her pregnancy in Sarah's face. And now Hagar's son, Ishmael, is mocking. The word here in Hebrew is playing, but uh, the, it seems that we've translated not just the action of playing, but the intent is mocking. And so um, Sarah understands that uh, Ishmael is not only just goofing off, but Ishmael is also a potential threat to Isaac as the heir. Now, Isaac we're told here, is weaned. Back in that day, you know, today, we wean kids as fast as we can. And uh, we'll try to get them off of, uh, uh, you know, mama's milk and into natural food. But back then, uh, it took like three years to, to wean a child, which is sort of weird when you think about the fact that they can talk by that time and have teeth. So, <laughs> but here we're told that Isaac is uh, weaned, so he's about three years old. And doing the math, we know that Ishmael is about 17 years old. And so picture this, a 17-year-old making fun of a three-year-old. How well do you think that's going to sit with mama? It doesn't sit well at all. And Sarah says, we need to get rid of this, uh, of this other son. And of course, it distresses Abraham because it's his son. And God had promised to bless him. But notice what God says to Abraham in verse 12. 
God said to Abraham, do not be distressed because of the lad and your maid. Whatever Sarah tells you, listen to her, for through Isaac your descendants shall be named. And of the son of the maid I will make a nation also, because he is your descendant. So Abraham rose early in the morning, took bread and a skin of water, and gave him to Hagar, putting them on her shoulder, and gave her the boy and sent her away. And she departed and wandered about in the wilderness of Beersheba. And the water in the skin was used up, and she left the boy under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him about a bowshot away, for she said, Do not let me see the boy die. And she sat opposite him and lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the lad crying. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What is the matter with you, Hagar? Do not fear, for God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise, lift up the lad, and hold him by the hand, for I will make a great nation of him. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the lad a drink. And God was with the lad, and he grew, and he lived in the wilderness, became an archer. And he lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. It's wonderful to see God's grace uh, here for this this servant girl, Hagar. You think about Hagar. I mean, she was taken, basically, from Egypt. She was required to be a servant. She was required then to be a wife. And then she was rejected as a wife. Then she was rejected as a servant. I mean, she has had a hard, hard life simply by doing what she's been told to do, simply by being obedient. We can make a whole lesson just on Hagar, but sometimes doing the right thing, uh, you're not treated well. This text is showing us God sees that, and God is going to provide for that, and uh, God's going to take care of, uh, of the one who is suffering and the one who's hurting. Now let's, for a minute, leave. Actually, we'll, for, the, for our whole time, we're going to leave Genesis and turn, if you would, to the New Testament book of Galatians. So from Genesis to Galatians, Galatians chapter 4, and let's spend just a couple of minutes looking at what Paul says is another lesson that we can learn from this story that we just read. Paul uses this incident to teach another truth just as significant to us. Uh, Galatians chapter 4, starting in verse 22. Galatians 4, look down at verse 22. Paul writes, For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. But the son by the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and the son by the free woman through the promise. This is the uh, New American Standard, and uh, most of the time it does a great job translating. Sometimes it's a little wooden. Here's one of those wooden translations where it just says that uh, one by the bondwoman. It's referring to Hagar as the bondwoman and Sarah as the free woman, meaning one was a slave and one wasn't. But also, we're told that the one born by the bondwoman, or by Hagar, was according to the flesh, meaning in the normal way. The, the son of Hagar was born in the normal way, but the son of Sarah, the free woman, was born through the promise. In other words, this happened by the power of God. So, Paul is, is contrasting these two. He's contrasting uh, Hagar and Ishmael, and he's contrasting uh, 
Sarah and Isaac, these, these two women and their, their sons. And he uses Hera, uh, Hera, <laughs> Hagar and Sarah as illustrations of two covenants, Old Testament, New Testament, or Old Covenant, New Covenant, or law and grace. And he likens the children of these women to two different people today. Um, look down at verse 28 as we see which one of these two we are. Verse 28 says, And you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise. But as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so it is now also. Paul is uh, referring to Ishmael mocking Isaac, uh, persecuting the one you know, born according to the Spirit. And he uses Isaac as an illustration. It basically says that, like Isaac, we were born supernaturally. He's speaking spiritually. You know, we were born again, if you want to say it that way, supernaturally. And it didn't happen because of the law. We were not born because of our good deeds, according to the law, but we were born by the grace of God. We were saved, we were forgiven of our sins by the grace of God. So Paul uses these, this, this incident in the Old Testament and applies it to salvation, which is a wonderful picture. Because remember, even Abraham and Isaac, they couldn't thwart God's promise by their works. How essential is that? And in a sense, that, uh, that gives us uh, a couple of principles um, we mentioned the first one, that nothing can stop God from fulfilling His promises to us, not even our mistakes. That's true in our salvation as well, as Paul is, is sharing with us, that um, you can't lose your salvation that God's given you. God gave it to you by grace. You can't lose it by your works. It was the same in Abraham's life. God made promise to Abraham. Abraham blew it, but God's promise was sure. It's the same in our lives as well. Uh, Paul continues, next verse, verse 30, through the first verse of chapter 1. He asks, What does Scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of a bondwoman, but of the free woman. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. In other words, sometimes we can have the misguided notion that although we become a Christian by grace, through faith, we're, we're pretty good on that, aren't we? I mean, we're really good on that. But then we'll try to live the Christian life by works. We'll try to live the Christian life and our view of our stance with God based on works. Somehow we're saved by grace, but in our in our day-to-day life, we sort of figure we're, we stay saved by law. Um, and and this, is, this Paul is saying, this is not the way it is at all. Do not let yourself be subject again to the yoke of slavery. So, a second principle could be simply this. Remove what threatens your confidence in God's grace. Remove what threatens your confidence in God's grace. Whether that's a thought, whether that is a person who is continually telling you, you know, lies, whether it's a Bible teacher, a radio program, a book, uh, music, whatever the, 
the, the voice is that's telling you that your relationship with God is totally dependent on you. A great application of this is to send Ishmael packing. Get him out. If he is a threat to the promise, if he is a threat to the truth of the grace of God in your life, Paul is saying, do not be shackled again to the lies that say that you're justified by the law as opposed to by God's grace. There's a wonderful book that uh, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote, the great uh, British pastor of yesteryear, and it's called Spiritual Depression, Its Causes and Its Cure. Spiritual Depression, Its Causes and Its Cure, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Listen to this quote. He asks, Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself rather than talking to yourself? Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself rather than talking to yourself? Because when we listen to ourselves, we hear lies, don't we? We hear the lies of the enemy. We hear the lies of our own flesh. We hear the lies of the world around us. But if we start talking to ourselves, we can tell ourselves the truth of what Paul is saying here in Galatians and the truth of what we saw in the book of Genesis. What truth is that? Let me say it again. Nothing can stop God from fulfilling his promises to us, to you, not even your mistakes. I'm going to ask you to do a little unpleasant exercise for a moment. Think about this past week. Think about some sins that you've committed this past week. And how in that moment, or in those moments of the, of the, the careless word, or the careless thought, or whatever it was that characterizes the sin for you this past week, um, remember that nothing you've done makes God love you any less nor does it in any way threaten your salvation, your forgiveness with God. Now, you may have fellowship with God that you'll need to confess and restore, but your relationship with God, your salvation, your forgiveness, completely unaffected. All right, now let's flip that coin and think about the other side. Think of some good things you've done this week. Those are more fun to think about, aren't they? The same is true of the, of the good things. Nothing, None of the good things that you've done this week can add to God's love for you. It can't add to your security, the security of your salvation. Um, so it's true of our sins and it's true of our good things because our relationship with God and the security of it is based on Him. It's God's grace coming and going. Listen to the um, words of of Paul in, uh, as he wrote to Titus. Just listen. This is Titus 2, 11 through 13. He says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Paul says that the grace of God 
is it has appeared, it's brought salvation, and it instructs us to live godly lives. Can I say that in just real simple terms? God's grace in our lives is the safety net that gives us the the safe place to learn to obey. We learn to obey through the safety net of His grace. No matter what you've done, uh, it doesn't threaten your relationship with God. One thing I love about these verses in Genesis is that uh, even though they occurred 4,000 years ago, they're still just as relevant in our lives and in our struggles as they are in Abraham's day. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you so much for a reminder of your grace today. The promises that you made to Abraham and to Isaac potentially were thwarted by Abraham and Isaac in their own deeds. In fact, same place, same sin, repeated. And yet you stepped in, not only to protect your people, but more importantly, to protect your promise, because your promises are eternal. Father, we've read from Paul's pen that the same is true in our lives, that your grace is the basis of our salvation. It's the basis of our relationship and security with you. And nothing we can do, whether good or bad, detracts from it or adds to it, because it is already complete and perfect. So help us, as Paul wrote to Titus, that, our, that the grace that we see becomes the motivation for the lives that we live. Because we are so wonderfully accepted by you, the life we live becomes a life of gratitude for what you have given. And we'll pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.